Hello, and welcome to the Healthcare Law Today podcast presented by Foley and Lardner. Each month, we are joined by a different thought leader to discuss current legal trends in the healthcare industry. I'm your host, Judy Waltz, partner and co-chair of Foley's Healthcare Practice Group. It's a pleasure to have you join us today. Before we begin our show, I want to remind you to subscribe to Healthcare Law Today, either on iTunes or your preferred podcast app. Please visit our website at healthcarelawtoday.com. For today's show, my colleagues Kyle Faget and Monica Chmielewski are joined by Jody Aiken, founder, chairman, and CEO of Hawthorne Effect. Hawthorne Effect has embraced the decentralized clinical trial model and is dedicated to enriching the quality, experience, diversity, and access to clinical trials for patients, providers, and sponsors. With Jody, we explore the newly released FDA guidance, decentralized clinical trials for drugs, biological products, and devices, and how Hawthorne Effect was positioned for this guidance and what steps it will take to adapt its practices. We also explore the unique opportunities afforded by conducting decentralized clinical trials. Take it away, Kyle. Thank you so much for the introduction, Judy. Hi, welcome everybody. I'm Kyle Faget. I'm the co-chair of the National Healthcare Practice Group at Foley and Lardner, and I'm a partner in our Boston office. I'm here with my colleague, Monica Chmielinski, and the founder and CEO of Hawthorne Effect, Jody Aiken. We're going to talk today about decentralized clinical trials, FDA's recent guidance about the same, and about Hawthorne Effect and how Hawthorne Effect is adjusting to FDA's most recent guidance. Um, and start by letting Jody talk about Hawthorne Effect and what Hawthorne Effect is bringing to the market. Uh, thank you, Kyle. Um, yeah, Hawthorne Effect was founded in 2015 um, and uh, inspired by at that point, 25 or more years of designing, conducting uh, clinical trials globally for breakthrough therapies uh, that required really high level um, bodies of evidence uh, to demonstrate safety and effectiveness um, for therapies that may have been unprecedented or have a really high bar of evidence to generate. And so the idea uh, back then before, I think DCT was a, a concept, was to be able to make clinical trials more accessible and more uh, uh, high quality and complete uh, for patients to participate in beyond the brick and mortar of academic or traditional clinical institutions. So the twofold um, mission was number one, to make uh, it easier for patients to access clinical trials and participate in them because of the burdens of participation but also at the same time to ensure a very high quality and consistency of data that is time sensitive and needs to be measure, measured in, in quite accurate ways. Uh, so the platform is a combination, it's a technology enabled service. Uh, the tech stack is designed to orchestrate and enable clinicians that we call heroes to meet patients on their terms uh, to carry them through a clinical trial journey from screening to longitudinal follow-up and tie that journey to investigators um, and be able to collect and deliver data in a high quality way in a, and in accordance to regulatory guidelines. Thank you, Jody. That, that's really informative. And, you know, it 
Hawthorne effect, you know, obviously is well poised and is and has been working in this space. And so I think the FDA's draft guidance on decentralized clinical trials is completely in your wheelhouse. And so I, we really appreciate you being willing to speak with us today about this. You know, as you know, the draft guidance was issued earlier this month, in the month of May by the FDA. It really addresses, you know, it gives some tips on the conduct, the structure of decentralized clinical trials, you know, looking at the design, um, what can be conducted remotely, uh, what is what needs to potentially be in person. It looks at the role of digital health technologies, the role of the sponsor, and uh, you know, the role of the investigator. It focuses on the product that's the focus of the trial. And, and it really contemplates that local healthcare professionals can, when appropriate, perform certain clinical trial activities, provided, however, that they are they're typical in terms of the scope of practice and don't require detailed knowledge of the investigational product, whether it's an investigational device under an IDE or um, an investigational drug. We need to make sure the guidance states that you know some investigators are trained on, you know, required procedures that require detailed knowledge of the protocol, and, and it does make a, a distinction between use of local healthcare providers that don't need to have detailed knowledge of the protocol versus trained sub investigators. So there's a number of requirements that the guidance discusses in terms of use of these local HCPs. Jody, for Hawthorne, how is your model? And I, there's a lot there. I mean, there's a lot that we can you know talk about in a package. But how do you see Hawthorne's model as being set up to accommodate? The, the you know this structure this decentralized clinical structure and these requirements you know that the FDA has touched upon in their draft guidance uh thank you uh, so I think that almost every single aspect that's now contemplated in the in so the in the guidance uh was contemplated in the architecture and the and the design and structure both of our platform and how we uh, created this distributed uh, network of healthcare professionals um, that could be um, enabled to utilize their scopes of practice, their licensure, and then further training through the platform to meet uh, the goals um, as outlined in GCP. So I'll break it down a little bit. And like the guidance, there is a lot to the platform. So first starting with the, I would say, investigators, sub-investigators, and delegates, so beyond those investigators, who else on the traditional clinical research team are conducting activities related uh, to the investigator's oversight. So that was the first piece we contemplated, that there needed to be a way to curate and then invite medical professionals of all practice scopes, because clinical trials require uh, more than blood draws or more than patient-reported outcomes. We wanted to be able to accommodate even the most, uh, I would say, complex types of uh, assessments that would need to be to be conducted. And so to be able to curate, invite to a platform, um, have an application, have uh, our heroes be able to be credentialed, um, verifying their scopes of practice, their licensures, and then further, once they're uh, what we call onboarded to the platform, be invited into a specialized learning management system that holds a number of training courses 
a full complement GCP training, um, and then all other kinds of uh, certifications and courses related in general to the conduct of clinical trials, how to, how to assess and report adverse events, and so on and so forth. So all of that was contemplated in, uh, on the HERO side so that we could always verify, certify, train, and continuously uh, train and monitor the medical professionals themselves, all ticked and tied to the idea that an investigator who is overarchingly responsible under a 1572 can have an oversight of these professionals uh, via this mechanism. So that, that's how we handled, uh, right again, from the genesis of, the, of architecting the platform, that we would be able to assert that the medical professionals, while they might not be experts in the actual protocol, would be able to conduct their roles and responsibilities very specifically, and that we can certify that. So that, that's the investigator and uh, hero part. Thank you, Jody. So another thing that the guidance discusses, and I imagine this, this really is an issue, when you're in a brick and mortar context, you might have one research coordinator and a, a specific team of individuals that are conducting procedures called for in a protocol. So it's the same team, same individuals doing and carrying out a protocol. And so you imagine you have some quality control there. In the context of a decentralized clinical trial, though, you might have numerous local HCPs or sub-investigators performing the same type of procedure, but different individuals. And so FDA commented on this idea of quality control when you have so many different providers um, conducting what should be ultimately the same procedure, but there might be some variation because there's so many other individuals. And so, you know, FDA was concerned about that quality control piece, both, you know, from the standpoint of conducting procedures and then even data, that data input is coming from so many different places. How is Hawthorne Effect addressing this idea of numerous inputs, numerous providers and addressing quality control in that context? Uh, yeah, a great question. And again, that was ground zero in my mind. Again, I come from a, a couple of decades of uh, wringing my hands in not only the design and execution of clinical trials, but to be able to, at the end of the day, deliver data packages um, so that the FDA and its advisors could interpret that data. And so that comes with, even outside of a decentralized model, one always needs to worry about if a six minute walk test is being conducted, not only consistently within an institution, but across all 50 or 100 institutions in the trial. So that for me was, was sort of a, the fundamental. It, it had to be a necessity that we created an ecosystem that would assure that level of quality. And I, and I hope someday could be viewed as even, even higher than we expect from institutions. Then I'll break it down. So the next part of, of the platform, I, I talked about credentialing and certifying all that. So the sort of underpinning of our platform is we took the concept of the study visit table and what assessments would need to be conducted throughout the trial. And for each assessment, assign instructions digitally with what is the assessment, for example, a six minute walk test or an IH stroke scales test and so on and so forth. Who ought to be doing it from a credentialing point of view? What is the, the methodology of conducting that assessment? What equipment might be associated with it? What are the data points to be collected? And that's coded into our platform so that uh, there's actually a training 
course for each and every one of those elements. And there's also consistency of instrumentation. So to, I, I would argue we can even take it up a notch in terms of conformity in data collection. So for example, we use the same EKG, regardless of trial, regardless of state, regardless of other study specifics, or we will identify, you know, again, which specific instrumentation that is vetted and verified. So that we, you know, again, from the very framework, the very foundation of the platform, job one had to be to be able to, to create um, a reliability and conformity of assessments over time. So that, that's how it's built and constructed. The second thing to talk about is just our methodology, what we call our playbook. So most trials or all trials have a manual of operations. And again, I'm delighted about the, the document because the guidance document, because all these things are, are now laid out. But we always um, run trials with manuals of operations that outline things like how data is collected and what level of monitoring is done. So we do the same on a study-by-study -study basis. Um, there is a, a, a playbook, we call it the HEMOF, the Hawthorne Effect Manual of Operations, and that will, at a study-specific level, outline what are the assessments, what is the equipment plan, what is the hero criteria that we outline, what is um, you know the training plan, so on and so forth. And that's set at the beginning of the study. It's, um, it's uh, shared with the investigators and the sponsors. Um, everyone agrees that that's the plan. And then the heroes uh, that are invited into those projects are trained accordingly. So I think both from a te digital technology point of view and from our sort of playbook, um, our process and procedures, we address quality in a very um, in a very deep way. Tying into that, into the quality concept in the guidance is also information regarding safety and safety monitoring plans. You know, the FDA, you know, has rightfully so identified, you know, that we need to make sure that even in the use of these decentralized clinical trials and these technologies, that sponsors build into their protocols a some type of a safety monitoring plan that, you know, takes into account the decentralized nature of the clinical trial and you know needs to describe how participants are expected to respond to and to report adverse events including when it's participants specifically you know where they can seek medical assistance where to receive file follow up care you know the FDA is ta tasking sponsors to make sure that you know the safety monitoring plan will include information for investigators, how adverse events can be reported. Um, the safety monitoring plan, the FDA deposit should describe, you know, the type of information that should be collected and how it's going to be used and monitored. Um, what it should describe what actions investigators and participants should take in relation to you know, safety issues, adverse events. And, and at a high level, it, it also describes, okay, how are adverse events going to be identified and managed? You know, including AEs that adverse events that would require some in-person attention when visits are virtual. You know, if there's some type of adverse event or harm to the participant that requires some, you know, hands-on attention, how is that addressed when you're using these technologies, when the interactions between the investigator or the heroes or the study staff are actually via virtual means. 
So with you, have you seen in any of the recent studies that you've been conducting, have you seen provisions, for, you know, accounting for, you know, these safety monitoring plans, these adverse events in the protocols and, and how do, and how are you training your heroes on this currently with respect to your studies? Yeah, this is an extremely important topic. And I will say that uh, probably the aspect of decentralized clinical trials, meaning either conducting visits virtually or even physically within homes or outside of the traditional sites, how how uh, we address that is, I think, evolving. To to be honest, but let me let me start from the beginning. So the very fundamentals of adverse event reporting. This part I think is not different than tradition in that. For example, we train our heroes, again, uh, in all aspects of GCP, including adverse events, why we're looking for them, what we're looking for, um, and then how to report those adverse events. So we have a mechanism through our platform that when a hero is conducting a visit, whether it's virtual or in-person, we do, we do a lion's share of complex studies where they're in-person visits, and often, by the way, with advanced practitioners doing these visits. If a, an, an adverse event is identified in that setting, then a form is completed and we have mechanisms to notify the investigator uh, immediately uh, in a way that they could respond to what the physical or whatever clinical findings have been, and then weigh in from that regulatory point of view on relatedness and anticipatedness and um, seriousness and, and those kinds of things that are part of the rigor of GCP. Um, so, ticked and tied and, and, a, and a process for that. I think what, what's new or, or to be contemplated that frankly, we've been you know, on the forefront of really pioneering procedures about how, how to think about this is one of the wonderful benefits of decentralized clinical trials and, and one of the pointed reasons for doing them is that we can invite patients from rural or, or communities that are outlying geographically and otherwise these, these sort of brick and mortar institutions or ivory towers. But what that means too, is that we wanna make sure that the information that's going back to the investigator is also flowing back to their, you know, their own providers and those kinds of things. So I think that part is really evolving. And I'm very excited about this because my broadest vision of all of what we're endeavoring is to, um, I would say, narrow the gap between the silos of clinical trials and clinical care. So this is sort of bringing forward the idea of how to ensure that data that's collected as part of a clinical trial protocol is getting to the providers and that the patients are informed about what they need to follow up. And I think this is a, an area that is still evolving and is, has, is an exciting area to endeavor in terms of linking medical records and things like that. Thank you, Jody. You know, one piece in the guidance addresses the need for there to be a physical location where the clinical trial related records will reside. And, you know, that's obviously so FDA can come and inspect. But another piece of it that I thought was odd, and we see this a lot in telemedicine uh, related guidance, laws, regulations, um, these oddities where I wonder if FDA thought this through 100% or what they were envisioning, and maybe they'll clarify this in the final guidance. But there's an aspect of this as well, where FDA expects that this central physical location where records may be inspected, um, in addition to that, personnel 
need to be um, available to be interviewed as well. And it's unclear to me, and I don't know if you read this differently, does that mean that all of the heroes need to be present and available at this one physical location? Because that pretty much seems quite counter to the idea of decentralized clinical trials, or is it just that these clinicians or heroes need to be made available telephonically or otherwise? How did you read that requirement and what is Hawthorne Effect doing to try and meet that requirement? Yeah, I didn't read that quite the same way, and I'm definitely going to be keen to uh, do doing the seminars and uh, being involved in, in the in the you know evolution of this. I took that to be a little bit to the traditional, meaning that if there are inspections like BIMO inspections that happen, they typically will happen, as you know, either uh, at the sponsor or manufacturer level, and then at the site level, uh, one would expect physical or you know inspection visits where the type of personnel that are interviewed are the investigators, the sub-eyes, the coordinators, um, and then at the sponsor level, the subject matter areas relevant to the, to the part of the audit that's being conducted. And so I think in, with that, in mind, it's not dissimilar for how we uh, conduct ourselves. We support our sites if they're having a physical BIMO audit. Then we're we're very connected to the investigators and the sites, um, and prepare together and make sure that the sites have all the information uh, that's relevant. So, for example, if a Hawthorne Hero is conducting visits for patients that they've enrolled, then all that, all the um, documentation around the hero, their certifications, that they're on the delegation of authority or their information is available. Uh, and then all the data related to the visits, that's all available physically if, or definitely virtually. If they wanna download and, and print and, and put into binders and have them physically um, able to be inspected, they can do that. I, I didn't interpret that, that each individual hero would need to be interviewed no more than uh, a phlebotomist would be interviewed who did a blood draw for you know, for a study visit, or an echosonographer in a hospital would would never be interviewed about an echo. So I think you know it's the the study personnel that are you know more related to the the I would say the oversight of the trial, and then the physicality. Um, yeah, that's I'm, I'm smiling because you know we're we, we've all worked really hard to move away from paper. And frankly, in our early days, we have both uh, physical sources and uh, e-sources. The physical sources are becoming antiquated, but they can, you know, e-sources are source of record. So if needed, they could be printed and, and provided in, in traditional binders and things like that. But, you know, I, I think we should definitely contemplate these more efficient means, but uh, certainly Hawthorne Effect would be prepared to host a physical visit and or to support, you know, those types of interviews. Yeah. And, and you raise a good point about, you know, interpretation of this and, and be willing to attend the seminars. I, I think that as, as we know, the FDA, you know, has put out and we can provide comments on this and there will be, you know, various seminars and webinars that, you know, the FDA is hosting to, we can seek further clarity and guidance. And, and another issue, um, in the guidance that we may be looking to expand upon and seek additional guidance from the FDA is in relation to the intersection between the regulation of clinical research as, as we're aware under the FDA regulations and the common rule, but also now the use of telemedicine and telemedicine technologies, which we know is regulated largely at a state level. And, and the guidance specifically states that 
it's the sponsors, but also the investigators responsibility to ensure that any remote clinical trial visits that are conducted using telemedicine, telehealth, one of these digital technologies, complies with applicable laws governing telehealth in the relevant U.S. states or territories or other countries as applicable. And I think one of the challenges that we've seen is that, you know, telemedicine, again, is largely state regulated. So states will have their own uh, individual uh, and unique, sometimes consistent laws regarding licensure. So if you have a principal investigator who's located in Illinois, but providing visits or interacting with a study subject, say in Montana, where does that physician need to be licensed to be able to perform those study visits? You know, there's telemedicine regulations uh, governing informed consent. So if you're going to be interacting with a patient using these digital technologies, certain states have additional informed consent requirements that could potentially be required to be layered over the traditional informed consent requirements we would see for a, a normal research study. You know, and part of this goes to the question of, and raises the issue of, is clinical trial activity, could that be considered to be the practice of medicine? You know, that's, again, figuring these telemedicine standards. Like, for example, in Texas, we know that their practice of medicine definition specifically includes research activities, and, and other states are, are silent or it doesn't contemplate. How, I mean, this, I think this is going to be an evolving and continuing issue. And, and I'm interested, you know, as you are in this space and have been acting in this space, how, how have you attempted, how have you managed this issue so far? Mm. Any, well, any tips? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> well, I, this is not my first, uh, I would say, career or path in something that is completely uh, change management from status quo in healthcare. What's different from the usual or the standard of practice? And what might we contemplate, you know, as risks the plan and so on and so forth? What, what's going to unfold? And one thing I've learned in my career, especially a, a lot of medical technology is, uh, and we see this in the world, by the way, at large, which is that regulations um, are kind of a trailing kind of thing. Usually um, you're, you know, you're foraying into new technology, new world, and uh, regulations have not sort of caught up with that yet. So I, I, I kind of surmised that that was going to happen. That's how I uh, was introduced to Foley and, and working closely uh, with Kyle. I, I thought about that early on and said, okay, how might this be considered? I did not assume that clinical research would necessarily be at that moment uh, considered practice of medicine and took a point of view of this is protocolized, it's under the you know oversight of an investigator. And in the early days, particularly of Hawthorne Effect, we were careful that the studies that we conducted and the activities that we did, the assessments that we were conducting were for the sake of collecting data and not for interpretation or for practice of medicine. So we took sort of a point of view, but we also took a point of view that things will change over time. And in my again, long career, they tend to change for the conservative. And so I, I kind of anticipated that as time went by, we should um, kind of presume that whether um, the trials become more where you're delivering drugs, uh, experimental or investigational drugs, or doing procedures and things like that that fall uh, you know, under practice 
of medicine that we should be prepared for that. And so we kind of started to pave that road early on to be anticipating th this this day would be coming. So that's that's sort of, you know, anticipated there, there would be unknown regulatory, you know, guidance or even legal constructs and just trying to stay ahead of the curve that way, as I think we have done. Having said all of that, it is insane, you know, the state by state requirements. It's, you know, because we credential all of our heroes, we make sure they're licensed where they're supposed to be licensed, let alone the practice of medicine, just to make sure. And uh, because we can have heroes that can practice in multi-states and things like that. And it's, it's really, you know, the idea of having compact licensures and oversight, I mean, our, our system is just so a giant quagmire of state versus, you know, you know, national rules. And it's, it's, it's a lot to manage. It's a lot to keep up with. And I question the logic of that. And I, I would love to see, you know, more uh, change coming in that, not just about clinical trials, but how, how we can have cross-state licensures and, and uh, you know, other ways of managing this process. Yeah, Jody, I think you joined many in wanting to have a national standard here, right? Like both for licensure and telehealth practice standards, it's very complicated. And from my point of view, you know, there's so many upsides to the decentralized model, um, you know, up to and including, as you've already addressed, all of a sudden you can get patient participation in trials in rural geographies where once those patients would have never considered being part of a clinical trial because it just the oh, access yeah. burden was just way too high. But I also think that this patchwork of legislation and regulation is very difficult. Uh, it is, and think about entrance right into yeah. this space. It, it's it's yeah I think that wholesale really needs to be looked at um, in general um, and, and think about where technology is taking us so this is something that really fascinated me in in endeavoring this which is you know I had this thought that as technology matures so let's take an example I mentioned a 12 EDKG well you know in my early days of practice you needed to understand Eitoven's you know theory of you know human physics and physiology, where to place leads. And you, you had to be a subject matter expert to actually do a 12 EDKG. Where should I put the leads and how do I run the machine and all that kind of stuff? Well, today you sensors or, you know, we use an elegant 12 EDKG that's a band around the chest and accurately collects that. So, you know, as it's technology levels, the field in terms of who can conduct certain assessments, th that's another whole point, right? So, you know, it, it's something to think about, about that that should lead us more to national licensures. And, and, you know, we try to cover those things with not only what are scopes of practice and what's appropriate, but what are the most elegant ways of, of assessing patients and conducting clinical assessments, data collection, et cetera, that's actually raising the bar on conformity, right? So rather than get mired down in, I have a nurse practitioner in Montana, is it okay for her or him to take that call in Colorado when they're going to conduct this test the same way, <laughs> you know, with the same skill and the same, you know, type of thing. So I, I think that it all does seem quite silly and it's extremely complicated. I think it sort of puts in sharp focus this juxtaposition that Monica raised about practice of medicine versus a protocolized, we're just acting out the elements of a protocol. And I think FDA has mm -hmm. traditionally, and for good reason, taken the view 
that this isn't traditional clinical care. You can see it as an, as an element um, required in informed consent that mm-hmm. the trial participant needs to understand and appreciate that this is not the same as traditional medical care, right? This is mm-hmm. investigational and that's a really important piece uh, that get, needs to be addressed as you're going through the informed consent process. But then on the other hand, as FDA acknowledged in this guidance, there are state laws about practice and practice standards, Mm -hmm. particularly for telemedicine. And as Monica suggested, in the state of Texas, it's very clear that clinical research is considered the practice of medicine. So then you have this tension where FDA is saying, okay, look, you know what, if you're going to practice telemedicine in the state of Montana, X, you know, element in the protocol may require or you may want there to be a virtual visit there but under those practice standards that may need to be real-time audio video telecommunication for that type of act for that type of procedure whereas if you went into the state of florida it might be perfectly fine to have asynchronous telemedicine used as the modality and so there's got to be a lot of adjustment and a lot of thought and fda actually stated in the guidance that the protocol should specify what should be virtual and what should be in person. And what's interesting to me about that tension is that a lot of state telemedicine laws leave it to the physician or the clinician's discretion to determine whether or not a virtual visit can be conducted and meet the standard of care, which again, these are all practice of medicine or practice of a professional licensure decision-making, but the sponsor is gonna have to, at least under this guidance, dictate at the outset, this is going to be virtual, this is going to be in person. And sometimes that might be, and it's going to require a lot of diligence on the sponsor's part to make sure that they're not putting something in the protocol and saying, hey, this should be virtual, when in fact, in any given geography, that might not be the right approach. And then the clinician ultimately is supposed to be the one that has jurisdiction to make that decision, what's what's appropriate for in person and what's appropriate for virtual. So it's just, it's an ongoing tension there. And, but importantly for the purposes of Hawthorne effect, like have you seen any clinicians balk at anything that should have, that's contemplated to be virtual and, or if you haven't, or has it just been so clear, like this would meet the standard of care Um, We're so far away from the line of a question about what should be in-person or virtual uh, that it hasn't come up. And then if it does come up, you know, what what are your thoughts about this and this tension? Well, yeah, there's a lot packed in there. Uh, I'll still take a piece. (laughs) (laughs) There's a lot in there. I'm going to, I want to end up with the sponsor um, and I don't want to forget to do that, but in terms of, you know, for Hawthorne effect, because we, we started with what I call complex trials, trials where the study visit table uh, contemplates 15 different assessments in one visit, uh, an echocardiogram, a, you know, blood draw and a neurologic exam. And because of that, the nature of most of the trials that we support, we've done full virtual trials, we've done telepresence trials, but our real wheelhouse is in these sort of complex phase three trials, phase two trials, where really the lowest bar of scope of practice to conduct all of those assessments is sort of the level of a nurse practitioner or even an MD. And because of that, we do, we do a lot of physical visits and we do them in a very rigorous and choreographed way. So frankly, we haven't 
needed to, or the sponsor hasn't in those types of protocols substituted uh, telepresence for those things because there's there's just other data collection that, that I had one physician tell me apps can't draw blood, right? So if there's a blood draw on a study visit table, then it still requires a physical visit. So that's sort of a bit more of our wheelhouse. But you, you tapped into something about, you know, the sponsors and the protocols and what they're writing. And it triggered something back to my being the sponsor days where we would write things into protocols, by the way, that compensated or addressed the limitations of patients having to go to brick and mortar. So for example, we used to exclude patients simply if they live 50 miles or 100 miles from a site because we knew that that would compromise their compliance over time. Or we might, um, or we would see that sometimes sites would enroll patients knowing the patients aren't gonna come back but would have, you know, call up their local physician and say, did you happen to get a blood draw or this or that and use that as clinical trial data? So we would write things into the protocol like the patient has to physically come back here for their visits. That was that was constructed for a completely different, but, but those vestiges are still sort of, you know, in protocols. And we do have to like teach and encourage sponsors to really, you know, construct their protocols from scratch. I know that's hard to do. A lot of people will like rinse and repeat, you know, and borrow an old protocol and sort of just adjust them. So I think that's the hardest part of the DCT movement is reticence on the sponsor's part for change. Frankly, I think the DCT guidance is, again, so encouraging to me in, in general because FDA embraces that this can be a methodology for capturing diversity and accessibility and even collecting more and interesting data and trials. And so we need to together make the, I'm more concerned about making the guidance friendly to sponsors so that, and, and to educate sponsors about how they can, you know, write their protocols to your point. And how do we address for that? Like, you know, when do they choose a telepresence assessment over not? And, and I, I hope what it, we, what ends up happening here is that we can be more creative about protocols and what is it we're trying to measure and why are we trying to measure it and, and what is the most productive way to do it. So there, I think this is open up new thinking. If anything, I tend to be an optimist, but that's sort of how I'm, I'm thinking about it. And I, I, I am, again, thrilled to use this guidance to have conversations with sponsors now and say, see, there's a footprint for this. There's a roadmap for this. There's encouragement to do it. Let's let's sit down and, and write that protocol in a very forward thinking way rather than kind of get stuck in some old ways. And I think that actually nicely leads into, and, and that you've already you know, started answering what in some ways I think is one of the more difficult questions, but exciting at the same time in that, you know, as we move forward and, you know, I think everybody's in agreement that the hope is there will be more use of uh, decentralized clinical trials going forward. I mean, the FDA and the guidance stresses, obviously, what they see the benefits of these being, as you just touched upon, you know, greater access to clinical trials, diversity, inclusion. What else do you see as potentially being, in the future, the greatest opportunities, but then also potentially the largest hurdles for the DTC space? I think the greatest opportunities is clinical. It almost will be a new word. I mean, I think my goal, my vision, my dream is that we're arcing into a place where 
we create better real world evidence through the ability to reach patients in their, you know, natural habitats in their comfort zones and be able to do real time or, you know, point in time collection of assessments and data and have that data, you know, be delivered directly into their records so that when we're doing, you know, data scraping and all that kind of stuff, we, we have real world evidence. So I, I think, you know, bringing clinical research right to the communities and utilizing research naive clinics, um, even retail health environments to invite and encourage patients to participate. I think that's the ultimate opportunity here. I think I think the hurdles, might, there might be some reticence, I would think, again, at certain sponsor levels, because they're, before FDA weighs in on the things, then they have been a little bit more unclear about how to proceed. So I, I think this could help break open a more broad mindset to DCT. Again, that's my experience. And we have a lot of experience with investigators who are not reluctant. <laughs> Site staff might be a little bit reluctant, but definitely sponsors are concerned if, if it's not, I would say, black and white about, you know, what the roadmap is in terms of, you know, FDA's oversight. And one of the things, Jody, that, you know, you've, you've talked about directly and indirectly, to me, one of the biggest opportunities of decentralized clinical trials is increasing diversity and participation in clinical trials. Like this has been talked about for years that, you know, X percentage of trials, trial participants have historically been white men. And that only gives you one snapshot um, of what a product will do in exactly that cohort right? And FDA has been stressing for years that clinical trials need to be diversified. I mean, this is like the mandate. And to me, this is the obvious path forward. When you can actually meet people where they are, uh, you have the opportunity to sort of blow the doors off of that traditional model, which, right? And to me, th like, to me, this is the, this is the answer to diversification. Yeah. This you know, is the end goal. Yeah, right. I'm going to jump in there just because I'm super excited about this. I, I agree with you, Kyle, that like it's been at least at least 20 years of my career. We've been writing into protocols. There's been first guidance. Then it's codified into law and it, up into the 21st Century Cure Act. I mean, it's everywhere. You can't get NIH funding without, you know, making commitment or showing that you're moving the needle. And still the needle has not moved up until very recently. I, I mean, it's shocking that you're still getting these very low percentages uh, of diversity. But the, the reason why is because of this accessibility problem. So you could write it into law, you could write it in the protocol all day long, but if a patient can't go from their six flight walk up in the middle of winter in Detroit to, you know, to their research hospital, it, it's not gonna change their participation. And that's why I'm so excited about Hawthorne Effect because that was exactly what we we said. Like we bring it to them, bring it to their homes, bring it to their local environments, uh, and that does enable it. And so I have a sort of exciting thing to share. Where one of the trials that um, Hawthorne Effect is it's not an FDA trial; it's a prevalence study, but it's a beautiful example that we have a virtual site of record, one brick and mortar, one site, not not hundreds of sites. But we're enrolling patients from Hawaii to Maine and all four corners and into communities. I think we're at 47 states now uh, have enrolled participants into this study in kind of a rapid fashion. 
But recently, when we looked at the demographics, because we were able to approach broadly, um, we've sort of cracked the code with 15% African-American participating versus usually the under 5% represented in trials, whereas our population is 13% African-American. Same for Asian uh, population. So we're now starting to see this representation come through. And it's, it's super duper exciting. That's amazing. I love that. Well, thank you, Jody, so much for your time. Thank you, Monica, for um, helping out here and participating as well. Is there anything else, Jody, that you think our listeners should know about before we let them go? Yeah, no, I think um, we should all have a voice. I, I think we should applaud the FDA for coming out with this guidance. Uh, it read very I think encouraging to me. Um, and I, I'm definitely encouraged because what we contemplated, uh, we're all in the right direction together and the underpinnings and I'm happy to share that with sponsors and colleagues about, you know, investigators, et cetera, how to, you know, skate to where the fuck is going. And it is decentralized and I think it is here to stay. This is by the way, an enhancement to traditional sites. So this is, I don't think a threat at, at all to uh, the traditional brick and mortar sites and we should all you know embrace where this is going for sure yeah i couldn't agree more well we're really looking forward to watching hawthorne effect grow and flourish you obviously were pioneering in this space and it's just really exciting and a really exciting time so thank you so much for spending some time to talk to us today and inform our listeners about what hawthorne effect is doing and kind of what's going on in the world so thank you thank you thank you kyle Thank you, Kyle and Monica, and a special thank you to Jody Aiken for a great discussion. We appreciate you taking the time to join us today. We want to thank everyone for listening to Healthcare Law Today podcast, your connection to timely legal updates in the healthcare industry. Healthcare Law Today is a monthly program, and we encourage you to subscribe to this podcast or to Foley's Healthcare Law Today blog at healthcarelawtoday.com. If you like this show, don't forget to subscribe and be sure to rate us five stars. Until next time on the Healthcare Law Today podcast, I'm Judy Waltz at Foley & Lardner. We appreciate you joining us.